Welcome to the Mac PFD Sparkle podcast. This is Ruth Chen, and in the Sparkle subseries, we'll bring you shorter segments released in between our longer Spark episodes. We'll have new and exciting interviews with professionals from across the world, helping you to achieve your personal and professional goals as a healthcare educator, researcher, leader, or practitioner at any stage of your career. So sit back, listen, and enjoy this episode of the Mac PFD Sparkle Podcast. Today, we will hear a special Health Professions Education Research interview with Dr. Teresa Chan, who will speak with Managing Editor Mary Beth DeVilbis and Editor-in-Chief Laura Roberts from Academic Medicine, one of the top journals in Health Professions Education Research. And perhaps this interview will inspire you to check out McMaster's very own HPER curriculum at macpfd.ca. The link is in the description of this episode. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this mini featured podcast for the hyper manual and curriculum. This is Teresa Chan. You've heard my voice before. I've been on other parts of the podcast within the curriculum, and it is my esteemed pleasure to bring you an inside scoop behind one of the top journals in health professions education research. So I'd like to introduce to you two people who are essential to making things work at academic medicine and actually I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. So maybe, Mary Beth, will you introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks, Teresa. I'm Mary Beth DeVilbis. I am the managing editor of Academic Medicine. I have been with the journal for 17 years. I've kind of worked in every capacity, so I'm hoping to be able to give some good insight into the review process, how the staff works, the editing process that we engage in, and what it's like to work behind the scenes there. Thanks a lot. Amazing. And last but not least, Dr. Laura Roberts. I'm Mary Best, Little Grasshopper. I've been the editor-in-chief of the journal, gosh, year and a half now. Started formally in January of 2020. I am the chair of psychiatry and professor of psychiatry at Stanford University and have pretty extensive experience working with a few different journals and really excited to talk with you today. Well, thank you to you both for joining me on this mini, mini short adventure behind the scenes. So just like any kind of good behind the scenes show, can we give a little bit of that history of this journal and where it's meant to be? What's the target audience? Because we talk about that in our modules about how you need to understand what the oh, case, the joint, right? You got to understand the journal that you're submitting to. You're supposed to read a couple of articles from the journal, maybe in the style of the article that you're going to submit to. So you're going to feel for the journal, but in an elevator pitch, what is the perspective that we have for this journal? Like it is broadly health professions education research that we're talking about, but specifically, I think academic medicine focuses on medical education. So I thought maybe could you explain where the position of the journal is in the field? I'll start, but I'm going to ask Mary Beth to comment a little bit historically. I think I may be stretching the journal in terms of its mission just a little bit. I see academic medicine as a field responsible for doing wonderful work in real time to improve the health of people and populations, but also the overarching goal is to really change the future through lots of different methods, discovery, education, innovation in clinical care, community engagement, and leadership in the field that's very intentional. 
And so it's a little bit broader. And for me, the journal should map on to all of these missions and approaches of academic medicine. And it should be built on a platform of you know, very careful stewardship of resources, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and professionalism. So I have this way of conceptualizing academic medicine as a field and a profession and how, how the health professions fit with that. And then the journal, I would like to see content related to all of those different areas. But there's no question that medical education, and I hope health professions education a little bit more broadly, is first among equals with these missions. With the awakening of such important issues around diversity, healthcare access, threats to global well-being, I do think we do have to stretch the mission of the journal. But I think for all of us who have loved the journal, the journal was one of the very first places I published in a lot. It's the, the place that many people seek to publish in. I think our first love is as teachers and medical educators. Mary Beth, if you want to give a little bit more of a historical perspective, because I don't know how many editors you've worked with, but we probably all bring our own special, I don't know, blend to the job. Definitely. That's right. So you are my fourth editor to work with. And of course, it changes just a little bit with every editor, but I think at the core of it, you know, we've been consistent kind of looking at the full spectrum of medical education, you know, undergraduate, graduate medical education, faculty issues, institutional issues, continuing professional development. You know, I think that we see ourselves in the field of health professions education, scholarship, offering content that can sort of be informing the efforts in real practice. So, you know, beyond the theoretical, beyond just kind of thinking, you know, pie in the sky, it's, it's how does this thing change our thinking in practice on the ground? I also wanted to acknowledge the journal's kind of longtime commitment to the humanities in health professions education. We have several long-running monthly features, medicine and the arts being, I think, the oldest of the bunch teaching and learning moments, which are, you know, personal vignettes, often by trainees. And then our cover art feature, which appears, of course, on the cover every month. So we, in addition to that topic of humanities and medical education appearing in our peer-reviewed content, we actually have carved out space for that in every issue of the journal for a long time now. Well, that's really exciting. It kind of situates the conversation that we'll have. So Mary Beth, I'm going to ask you to maybe give us a behind the scenes. So I'm an author. I've scoped out the journal. I've done my due diligence. I've formatted it. I've read every detail in the author guidelines, been confused, emailed you a couple of times, fixed it all, and I've just hit submit. What happens to the journal after that? So every submission is screened by a member of our staff to make sure that, right, just like you said, all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed, figuratively speaking. And if there is a problem, typically we will move forward anyway. We're not going to reject a submission or withdraw a submission because the wrong font was used or because the margins are not the right, <laughs> the right setting or anything like that. At that stage, we on the staff sort of confirm that everything is present and accounted for. And then it goes to one or more members of our editorial team to be reviewed, to be sort of triaged, I guess is the right word. So oftentimes, one of our associate or deputy or assistant editors will first take a look and decide whether to send the paper to external peer review or to recommend that it be declined without 
external review. At that stage, it would go to Dr. Roberts for the final decision if it's not going to be sent to external peer review. So Dr. Roberts has the final decision on every submission, with the exception of those that have a conflict of interest at her institution, which is Stanford University. So in those cases, a deputy editor acts as the proxy for her. But if it does go to external review, then we always get at least two external peer reviewers to provide feedback about the submission before the editorial team takes another look and decides whether or not to move forward at that stage. And so if people put things together, they're submitting and then they may or may not get kind of that desk rejection that we call, call that no things, this isn't a good fit. Straight off the bat, no reviewer comments, just generally speaking, just not a great fit for our journal at this time. You have a really well-worded email that is very kind, even when it's maybe not the best news. Yeah. But at the same time, I do think that a lot of the time we tend to, I think, appreciate the fast turnaround because I think that that's one of the things that I find as an author, I want to move on to the next journal. So I don't think a desk rejection is bad as long as it doesn't take eight months to generate it. And I think that at least at this journal, which obviously I'm one of your associate editors right now, so I can speak to the fact that I try to get on those as as soon as humanly possible so that the authors can move on. And I think that it's kind of that cruel to be kind kind of, uh, but it's kind to be actually a little bit, you know, not cruel, but like just immediate in our reaction. No, that's right. And I think that's something that we really recognize and try to adhere to understanding that if the news is going to be bad, we want it to be bad as soon as possible so that we don't waste a lot of time, a lot of your valuable time. As an author, you do have the chance to try another journal as soon as possible. You know, right now we are able to get those reject without review decisions back to authors, usually within one week. Sometimes, you know, if there's if there's more conversation, perhaps a little longer, but that's really what we aim for. So again, really keeping in mind that time is valuable uh, and we can, you know, we can make that commitment. So. And now we'll go to Laura, maybe could you tell us a little bit more about what kind of is in the mind of the editors usually when they're sending a paper out for review? Because I think that that changes, that's an editorial kind of taste and methods kind of uh, perspective. So could you shed light when you're teaching us how to get through the day with our papers that we send for review? What are we looking for? What are we thinking? Well, the editor's role is to try and help the authors bring forward their best work, right? And so when we send a paper for review, sometimes we don't send papers for review even though they're lovely papers. And it could be that we have numerous papers in a similar topic. There are many reasons that are independent of actually the quality of an individual paper that lead to a desk rejection. But let's say we decide that we will proceed with a paper that we think has value and has value specifically in relation to our mission and our readers and the readers we hope to have, right? And when we send it to reviewers, we're looking for comments that will help discern whether the work is ready to be moved forward for publication. And then given that kind of just general up-down decision, how to improve the work so that it is the best possible presentation in terms of clarity, the relevance and rationale for the work, why would someone read it and benefit from it? the methodological rigor, the clarity of the presentation of the findings, and then kind of interpretation and application, as Mary Beth was emphasizing, that will allow it to make a difference in the world. 
So when we send it out for review, we are often sending it to content experts, but sometimes we'll be talking with methodological experts to help us think about how to support the authors in advancing the best work if it really feels like it's ready. Sometimes it's not, and there's more developmental work that needs to happen, or it's a great idea, but we need data, we need outcomes, we need something that tells us that this great idea about an intervention or an innovation is different or better than the, the next great idea of an intervention or innovation. Anyways, when we send things out to, for review, it's meant to be constructive. It's meant to fulfill kind of one of the responsibilities of professionalism, which is self-observation, critique, rigor in advancing the work, identifying any potential flaws or fatal flaws in the work, and then helping to advance the field through that process. And when you talk about fatal flaw, people talk about that, but what are like maybe the top three fatal flaws that you often see people have in their papers so that we can all maybe screen it in our own work before we even submit? I mean, I already regret using that phrase, but what I would say is there are sometimes problems that we just can't overcome, you know, in advancing the work. I mean, a, a really something I see like all the time is say a web-based survey posing a broad question and it isn't really tied to say a, a base population that we know and understand there isn't clarity around the kind of question that's being proposed it's not clear whether in any way the people who are respond are representative maybe there are things about how the analysis have been done that could distort whatever findings are there. And we have really, really sophisticated quantitative people to help us think about that. Something that I fuss over all the time has to do with clarity of the presentation of the findings. You know, often people are overly inclusive or overly complicated, and it really doesn't, you know, pose a question, engage in a, you know, a thoughtful analysis or approach to it and then provide an answer to the question that then helps to advance the field. So it's that kind of thing that I tend to look for. And it isn't that there are fatal flaws, but maybe some papers do it better than others. And sometimes they're just such significant methodological problems that we can't go forward with the work. Now, the reason I say I kind of regret using the phrase fatal flaw is that it depends a lot on the status of a field. So for example, if something is very early on, there isn't much evidence in the area, it's conceptually novel, you know, the quality of the, the data and quality of the outcomes are, are not going to be as strong. And that's just the nature of science, you know, the nature of inquiry processes. They become more rigorous and more precise over time. We hope more accurate too. I can give you an example of something that does not work for us, which is like, you know, an intervention, not well described, not well rationalized. And then we get something at the end that says, and the, and the learners liked it. You know, it's not something that we can accept. We have so many papers. My gosh, we're reject. We have to reject so many papers. And that is, I think, really hard on all of us. We know that people are working so hard to put this work together and it's, they're putting their little tender hearts out on the paper and, and we have to decline them. But the overarching goal is to help them eventually do better and better work and to support the authors and to support the field. And so we've walked through kind of the behind the scenes 
I think that I want to give a shout out to all the people who do editorial work because I know how hard it is. So all the fellow assistant and associate editors and deputy editors doing all that work. But then also, you know, we have editorial assistants and administrators that help us keep the workflow going. We also have a lot of reviewers who do so much great work. And I think the academic medicine stands out in my mind because it actually does reward reviewers in a very meaningful way. I honestly fell over off my chair, I think, the first time I got an email saying that I won an award for peer reviewing. And I thought that that was just something you're supposed to do because it's the right thing to do. It's like how we keep the science moving. And yet it was so nice to get a little award from academic medicine. I I would say that I probably wouldn't be on the editorial board had you guys not given me that award earlier on because I probably wouldn't have done more reviews and I might not have found my niche in helping others bring the best out of their science. And I think that reviewers do a really great job at that. And those of you who have during the pandemic stepped up to the plate when we've had a record-breaking amount of science being put forth, whether it was COVID or not, didn't matter. It was coming out. And so it's been just so amazing to see that. But the reviewers do so much work. And I'm glad that the journal, at least this journal in particular, does consider those awards. And I've actually been able to use this journal as an exemplar to other journals who didn't have awards. I'm like, it's just a piece of paper or an email PDF even that you're sending someone a letter saying that they did a great job on reviews. And they're such a precious commodity that it's been an easy sell to some of the editors to make it on a roll. Let's put it that way for people who are doing great work. I'm glad you brought that up. It's something that we started doing. Oh, I, I can't even remember now, you know, probably more than 10 years ago. But at the same time, we were looking for a way to make sure that that contribution was elevated and recognized because it is a volunteer act. And you're right, it's what makes science happen. But we literally couldn't exist without our volunteer peer reviewers. And especially the ones who are, you know, making time among all their multitude of tasks and clinical duties and education duties and all these things to take the time to not only weigh in, is this a good paper for you to publish, but here's how to make it better. And, you know, here's something to think about for next time. And even though I'm recommending that we don't accept this, you know, here's some things for you to take forward and, and, you know, make this paper better for a different journal. That's so important. And, you know, over the years, I know I've made some great relationships with reviewers who've become board members like you, Teresa. It's a wonderful cycle. And again, we could not do it without the reviewers that we have. I wanted to jump in too to say, I think that reviewers do so much and give so much, but I've heard from many, many reviewers, and it was certainly true in my experience, that I learned a lot from seeing a paper just kind of evolve, like seeing the initial drafts, seeing how the feedback helped the authors improve the work, and kind of what the ultimate paper was. So I I hope from a developmental point of view, especially for early career people, it's a valuable learning endeavor. And I know there's a a bit of an imposter syndrome. There's awkwardness when you're asked to review a paper and you kind of feel like, who am I? But I have to say, oftentimes the early career people work so hard on their reviews and they're so generous to their colleagues that I always like to see a mix of more senior and more junior people or more early career people in the review process, because I think they really are so kind and so helpful and so diligent in the work. And I think that goes to a lot of the way that we think about making mistakes. Sometimes it's better to have ridden shotgun on someone else's mistakes before making your own. So it's kind of the reason why in you know medicine, we have morbidity and mortality rounds, right? 
so that one mistake can be amplified and shared with a lot of people so that it becomes the story that keeps you from making that mistake yourself, hopefully. I think reviews are a way to do that as an author, for you to discern from fresh eyes, a new perspective, what are some common mistakes that other people make so that you can check yourself in your own practice. If you need a reason that's more self-serving to get engaged in peer review, some people need it. I do think it makes you a better scientist overall. And it gives you a lens into the process. And for those people who want to someday be an editor-in-chief, I don't think it's possible for you not to do a good number of reviews and then editorial work before you can you know, aspire to be the next Dr. Roberts, for instance, because I think that there is a very clear defined entry path as a reviewer. You can't just come out of nowhere and become an editor. You have to have done some of that stuff, if only because it allows you to hone your craft so you're better when you get there. So I think we're getting to the end of this. So thank you so much to both of you. But maybe do you have any final thoughts, generally speaking, about academic publishing, maybe a pearl or a tip that you wish everyone could know, not necessarily speaking on behalf of the journal, but just as someone who's been through the School of Hard Knocks on both ends of things, I'd love to hear what your final thought might be around academic publishing. Two pearls, I guess. One is to tell people to keep writing. You know, don't be discouraged. Every one of us has had papers rejected. We've had a poor fit. We've had an authorship dilemma or conflict with colleagues. And just keep at it because it really is the way that we kind of share and communicate with our colleagues. And then the second thing is editors are people. They're actually human beings. And we might make mistakes. We try at the journal to always have at least two sets of eyes on every paper so that we can watch out for our own blind spots or biases or kind of double check our judgments on these things. But we are human beings. And so the, the good news about that is that if you really need to connect with us, we, we will respond. You know, we, we care about the field. We all love the written word. We all love the work or we wouldn't be in these roles. And so... You know, you have to be patient with us on timing, but we, we're happy to engage with authors and reviewers in the field. The negative part of it, right, is that sometimes we, we might make mistakes. And for that, I just want to emphasize that there are safeguards in our approach. I've already talked about the two sets of eyes, but also you can connect with the editorial staff about questions or even do appeals around decisions. And we don't view that negatively. We view that as people conscientiously trying to learn and advocate for their work. And you may be disappointed with the ultimate outcome, or you may be surprised in a pleasant sort of way. But I just want to say that there are human beings in this process, and we're, we're here to really support, support the field and support you. You stole my answer. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, having been on the staff for so long, it's been such a tremendous opportunity I mean, I don't have a medical education background by training. I just kind of got folded into this family and, and learned along the way and developed all kinds of relationships. And I know our whole staff is the same way. And those of you who have worked with our team of staff editors, I'm sure you have stories of people going above and beyond to really make your paper shine before it comes out or providing a little extra information. If you can't find something on the website, you know, we're always here. We're always, you know, we, we care so much. So we, we want to make you look good and we want to make the journal look good. And so any questions you have, please don't hesitate to reach out. We are people and we will respond 
and we're missing the opportunity to get to meet people in person at conferences these days, but we're trying to leverage the technology that we have and that we've been forced to <laughs> become comfortable with during COVID. We're really trying to identify ways to be able to engage more with people who are have questions or want to learn more about the writing process, you know, just like Teresa is doing. So again, please continue to reach out. And if something's not clear, we'd love to hear about it and, and have the opportunity to improve. And thanks yeah, for all your work. It's yeah, work. I think it's yeah. amazing that people are putting work forward. It takes a lot of bravery and vulnerability to do that. It takes yeah. a lot of bravery and vulnerability to get rejected by, you know, journals left, right, and center and still live to find another day. So kudos to you for all taking the steps forward towards that and reach out to us. And when you're on the other side, as an editor or reviewer, remember authors are people too. Right. <laughs> pay it forward, right? That kindness that you're going to receive from others if you can pay it forward. And, and that's how we make this cycle all get better. Rather than degrading, you can actually be an amplification and you can be someone who can help others become better. And then the whole field gets better in return. So thank you to you both for joining me for this podcast. Yeah. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. Just so you know, this podcast has been brought to you by the McMaster Faculty of Health Sciences and specifically the Office of Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development. If you're interested in finding out more about what we can offer for faculty development, check out our website at www.macpfd.ca. That's www.macpfd.ca. Many of our events are actually web events that are free. Finally, I'd like to thank our sound engineer, Mr. Nick Hoskin, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Thanks so much, Nick, for all that you do. And also thank you to Scott Holmes for supplying us the music that you've been listening to. All right, so until next time, this is Mac PFD Spark signing off.